CD7 Lamps were lit all along the tunnel to what Vimes had come to think of as downtown Bjonk. Dwarf guards waved the coach through after a mere glance at the Ankh-Morpork crest. The ones around the giant elevator were more uncertain, but Sam Vimes had learned a lot from watching Lady Sybil. She didn't mean to act like that, but she'd been born to it, into a class that had always behaved this way. You went through the world as if there was no possibility that anyone would stop you or question you, and most of the time that's exactly what didn't happen. There were others in the elevator as it rumbled downwards. Mostly they were diplomats that Vimes didn't recognise, but there was also, now, in a roped-off corner, a quartet of dwarf musicians playing pleasant yet slightly annoying music that ate its way into Vimes's head as the interminable descent went on. When the doors opened, he heard Sybil gasp. "'I thought you said it was like a starry night down here, Sam.' Uh, "'They've certainly turned the wick up.' Candles by the thousand burned in brackets all around the walls of the huge cavern, but it was the chandeliers that caught the eye. There were scores of them, each at least four stories high. Vimes, always ready to look for the wires behind the smoke and mirrors, made out the dwarfs working inside the gantries and the baskets of fresh candles being lowered through holes in the ceiling. If the fifth elephant wasn't a myth, at least one whole toe must be being burned tonight. Your grease! D was advancing through the crowds. "'Ah, ideas taster,' said Vimes as the dwarf approached. "'Do allow me to introduce you to the Duchess of Ankh, Lady Sybil.' Uh, uh, yes, indeed, so delighted to make your acquaintance,' D murmured, caught off guard by the charm offensive. "'But, er, uh... Sybil had picked up the code. Vimes loathed the word Duchess, so if he was using it, then he wanted her to out-Dutch everyone.' She enveloped Dee's pointy head in delighted duchessness. "'Mr. Dee, Sam has told me so much about you,' she trilled. "'I understand you're quite the right-hand man.' "'Dwarf,' hissed Vimes. "'Dwarf, to his majesty. "'Please, you must tell me how you have achieved such a delightful lighting effect here.' Uh, "'Lots of candles,' Dee muttered, glaring at Vimes. "'I think Dee wishes to discuss some political matters with me, dear,' said Vimes smoothly, putting his hand on the dwarf's shoulder. If you'll just take the others down, I'll join you shortly, I'm sure. And he knew that no power in the world was going to prevent Sybil sweeping on down to the reception. That woman could sweep. Things stayed swept after she'd gone past. You brought a troll! You brought a troll! muttered Dee. And he's an ankh more pork citizen, remember, said Vimes, covered by diplomatic immunity and a rather bad suit. Even so. There is no even so, said Vimes. "'We are at war with the trolls.' "'Well, that's what diplomacy is all about, isn't it?' said Vimes. "'A way to stop being at war? "'Anyway, I understand it's been going on for five hundred years, "'so obviously no one's trying very hard.' "'There will be complaints at the very highest level,' Vimes sighed. "'More,' he said. "'Some are saying ankh Morpork is deliberately flaunting its wickedness before the king.' "'The king?' said Vimes pleasantly. "'He's not exactly king yet, is he?' Not until the coronation, which involves a certain object. Yes, but of course that is a mere formality. Vimes moved closer. But it isn't, is it? He said quietly. It is the thing and the whole of the thing. Without the magic, there is no king. Just someone like you unaccountably giving orders. Someone called Vimes teaches me about royalty, said Dee miserably. And without the thing, all the bets are off, said Vimes. There will be a war, explosions underground. There was a tinny little sound as he took out his watch and opened it. My word, it's midnight, he said. Follow me, Dee muttered. Am I being taken to see something, said Vimes. No, Your Excellency, you're being taken to see where something is not. Ah, then I want to bring Corporal Littlebottom. That, absolutely not. "'That would be a desecration of—' "'No, it wouldn't,' said Vimes. "'And the reason is she won't come with us "'because we're not going, are we? "'You're certainly not taking the representative "'of a potentially hostile power into your confidence "'and revealing that your house of cards "'is missing a card on the bottom layer, are you? "'Of course not. "'We are not having this conversation. "'For the next hour or so, "'we'll be nibbling titbits in this room. "'I haven't even just said this, and you didn't hear me.' But Corporal Littlebottom is the best scene of crime officer I've got, and so I want her to come along with us. 
You've made your point, Excellency, graphically as always. Fetch her then. Vimes found Cheery standing back to back, or at least back to knees, with Detritus. They were surrounded by a ring of the curious. Whenever Detritus raised his hand to sip his drink, the nearby dwarfs jumped back hurriedly. Where are we going, sir? Nowhere. Ah, that sort of place. But things are looking up, said Vimes. D has discovered a new pronoun, even if he does spit it. Sam, said Lady Sybil, advancing through the throng. They're going to perform Blood Axe and Iron Hammer. Isn't that wonderful? Er, uh, it's an opera, sir, Cherry whispered. Part of the Cobaldian cycle. It's history. Every dwarf knows it by heart. It's about how we got laws and kings and the scone, sir. I sang the part of Ironhammer when we did it at finishing school, said Lady Sybil. Not the full five-week version, of course. It'll be marvellous to see it done here. It's really one of the great romances of history. Romances, said Vimes, like a love story. Yes, of course. Blood Axe and Ironhammer were both, er, weren't both, Vimes began. They were both dwarfs, sir, said Cheery. Ah, of course, Vimes gave up. All dwarfs were dwarfs. If you try to understand their world from a human point of view, it all went wrong. Do uh, enjoy it, dear. I've got to... Uh, the king wants me to... Um, I'll just be somewhere else for a while. Politics. He hurried away with Cheery trailing behind him. Dee led the way through dark tunnels. When the opera began, it was a whisper far away, like the sea in an ancient shell. Eventually, they stopped at the edge of a canal, its waters lapping at the darkness. A small boat was tethered there, with a waiting guard. Dee urged them into it. "'It is important that you understand what you are seeing, Your Grace,' said Dee. "'Practically nothing,' said Vimes. "'And I thought I had good night vision.' There was a clink in the gloom, and then a lamp was lit. The guard was punting the boat under an arch and into a small lake. Apart from the tunnel entrance, the walls rose up sheer. "'Are we at the bottom of a well?' said Vimes. "'That is quite a good way of describing it,' Dee fished under his seat. He produced a curved metal horn and blew one note which echoed up the rock walls. After a few seconds, another note floated down from the top. There was a clanking, as of heavy ancient chains. "'This is quite a short lift compared to some up in the mountains,' said Dee, as an iron plate ground across the entrance, sealing it. "'There's one half a mile high that will take a string of barges.' Water boiled beside the boat. Vimes saw the walls begin to sink. "'This is the only way to the schoon,' said Dee behind him. Now the boat was rocking in the bubbling water, and the walls were blurred. "'Water is diverted into reservoirs up near the peaks. Then it is simply a matter of opening and closing sluices, you see.' "'Yes,' mumbled Vimes, experiencing vertigo and seasickness in one tight green package. The walls slowed, the boat stopped shaking, the water lifted them smoothly over the lip of the well and into a little channel where there was a dock. "'Any guards below?' Vimes managed, stepping out onto the blessedly solid stone. "'There are usually four, said Dee. "'For tonight I arranged matters. The guards understand. No one is proud of this. I must tell you I disapprove most strongly of this enterprise.' Vimes looked around the new cave, a couple of dwarfs were standing on a lip of stone that overlooked what was now a placid pool. By the look of it, they were the ones who operated the machinery. "'Shall we proceed?' said the dwarf. There was a passage leading off the cave, which rapidly narrowed. Vimes had to bend almost double along one length. At one point metal plates clanked under his feet, and he felt them shift slightly. Then he was standing almost upright again, passing under another arch, and there... Either the dwarfs had cut into a huge geode, or they had with great care lined this small cave with quartz crystals until every surface reflected the light of the two small candles that stood on pillars in the middle of the sandy floor. The effect dazzled even Vimes after the darkness of the tunnels. "'Behold,' said Dee gloomily, "'where the scone should be!' A round, flat stone, midway between the candles and only a few inches high, clearly held nothing. Behind it, water bubbled up in a natural basin and split into two streams that flowed around the stone and disappeared again into another stone tunnel. "'All right,' said Vimes. "'Tell me everything.' "'It was reported missing three days ago,' said Dee. 
Dozy Longfinger found it gone when he went in to replace the candles. And his job is? Captain of the candles. Ah, it's a very responsible position. I've seen the chandeliers. And how often does he go in there? He went in there every day. Went? He no longer holds the position. Because he's a prime suspect, said Vimes. Because he's dead. And how did that happen? said Vimes, slowly and deliberately. He took his own life. We're certain of this because we had to break down the door of his cave. He'd been captain of the candles for sixty years. I think he couldn't bear the thought of suspicion falling on him. To me, he does sound a likely suspect. He did not steal the scone, we know that much. But the robes you people wear could hide practically anything. Was he searched? Certainly not. But... "'I'll demonstrate,' said D. "'He walked off along the narrow, metal-floored corridor. "'Can you see me, Your Excellency?' "'Yes, of course.' "'The floor rattled as D. came back. "'Now this time I'll carry something. "'Your helmet, if you please, just for the demonstration.' "'Vimes handed it to him. "'The ideas taster walked back down the corridor. "'When he was halfway, a gong boomed "'and two metal grills dropped down out of the ceiling. "'A few seconds after that,' Guards appeared at the far grill, peering in suspiciously. Dee said a few words to them. The faces vanished. After a while, the grills rose slowly. "'The mechanism is complex and quite old, but we keep it in good working order,' he said, handing Vimes his helmet. "'If you weigh more going out than going in, the guards will want to know why. It's unavoidable, it is still accurate to within a few ounces, and does not violate privacy. The only way to beat it would be to fly.' "'Can thieves fly, Your Excellency?' "'Depends on which sort,' said Vimes absently. "'Who else goes in there?' "'Once every six days the chamber is inspected by myself and two guards. "'The last inspection was five days ago.' "'Does anyone else go in there?' said Vimes. "'He noticed that Cheery had picked up a handful of the off-white sand "'that formed the floor of the scone cave "'and was letting it run between her fingers. "'Not lately.' When the new king is crowned, of course, the schoon will often be brought forth for ceremonial purposes. Do you only get that white sand in here? Yes. Is that important? Vimes saw Cheery nod. I'm not sure, he said. Tell me, what intrinsic value has the scone? Intrinsic? It's priceless. I know it's valuable as a symbol, but what is its value in itself? Priceless! "'I'm trying to work out why a thief might want to steal it,' said Vimes as patiently as he could. Cheery had lifted up the flat round stone and was looking underneath it. Vimes pursed his lips. "'What is she doing?' said Dee. The pronoun dripped with distaste. "'Corporal Littlebottom is looking for clues,' said Vimes. "'They are what we call signs which may help us. It's a skill.' "'Would this letter speed your search?' said Dee. "'It has writing on it. "'That is what we call signs which may help you.' Vimes looked at the proffered paper. It was brown and quite stiff, and covered in runes. "'I uh, can't read those,' he said. "'It's a skill,' said Dee solemnly. "'I can, sir,' said Cherry. "'Allow me.' She took the paper and read it. Uh, "'It appears to be a ransom note, sir, from... "'The sons of Aggie Hammer Thief. "'They say they have the scone and will... "'They say they'll destroy it, sir.' "'Where's the money?' said Vimes. "'They say Rhys must renounce all claim to be low king,' said Dee. "'There are no other conditions. "'The note's turned up on my desk, "'but everyone puts paperwork on my desk these days.' "'Who are the sons of Aggie Hammer Thief?' said Vimes, looking at Dee. "'And why didn't you tell me about this before?' "'We don't know.' It's just a made-up name, some malcontents we assume, and I was told you would ask me questions. But this isn't a real crime any more, is it? said Vimes. This is politics. Why can't the king just renounce all claim, get the scone back, and then say he had his fingers crossed, if it's done under duress? We take our ceremonies seriously, Your Excellency. If Rhys renounces the throne, he cannot change his mind the next day. If he allows the scone to be destroyed, then the kingship has no legitimacy and there will be trouble, said Vimes. And it'll spread to Ankh-Morpork, he added to himself. At the moment, it's only riots.
who'll become king if he abdicates? Albrecht Albrechtsen, as everyone knows. And that will be trouble too, said Vimes. Civil war, from what I hear. The king says, said Dee quietly, that he is minded to step down nevertheless. Better any king than chaos. Dwarfs do not like chaos. It's going to be chaos either way, though, said Vimes. There have been rebellions against kings before. Dwarfdom survives. The crown continues. The law abides. The scone remains. There is a sanity to come back to. Oh, my gods, thought Vimes. Thousands of dwarfs die, but that's all right if a lump of rock survives. I'm not a policeman here. What can I do? This hasn't happened, shrieked Dee, his nerve cracking. But everyone knows that foreigners from Ankh-Morpork do not mind their own business. Ah, you mean, given that you don't want people to know about this, it would look bad if you appeared to be too excited, but you can't be blamed if a stupid flatfoot pokes his nose into things. Dee waved his hands in the air. This wasn't my idea. Look, the security you've got here would disgrace a children's piggy bank. I can think of two or three ways of getting a scone out of here. What about the secret passage into this room? I know of no secret passage into this room. Oh, good. At least we've ruled out something. Go and wait by the boat. Corporal Littlebottom and I have to talk about some things. Dee left reluctantly. Vimes waited until the dwarf was visible in the glow of the candles beyond the waybridge. What a mess, he said. Locked room mysteries are even worse when they leave the room unlocked. You're thinking that Dilsey might have worn bags of sand under his robes, aren't you, sir? said Cheery. No, thought Vimes, I wasn't. But now I know how a dwarf would solve this. Possibly, he said aloud. Grubby white sand can't be uncommon. You'd add a bit of sand every day, yes? Just enough not to trigger the scales. Finally, you've got... How much does the scone weigh? About sixteen pounds, sir. All right. Dump the sand on the floor, shove the scone under your robes, and it might just work. Risky, sir. But no one thinks anyone is really going to try to steal the scone. Would you try to tell me that four guards, sitting in that little guardhouse on a twelve-hour shift, will be alert all the time? That's enough for a hand of poker. I suppose they rely on the fact that they know when a boat comes up, sir. Right. Big mistake. And do you know what? I bet that when a boat's just gone down, that's the time they're least alert. Cheery. If a human could get in here, they could get into the scone cave. They'd have to be nimble and a good swimmer, but they could do it. The guards on the gates were pretty keen, sir. Well, yes. Guards always are just after a theft. Smart as foxes and sharp as knives, just in case anyone wonders if it was them who dropped off to sleep at the wrong time. I'm a copper, Cheery. I know how dull guarding can be, especially when you know that no one is ever going to steal what you're guarding. He scuffed the sand with his boot. They were looking hard at every cart that went in or out this morning, but that was because the scone had been stolen. It's at times like this you get very official, very efficient and very pointless activity. Don't try to tell me that last week they opened every barrel and prodded every load of hay, even the stuff coming in. Can you see D? Is he looking at me? Cheery peered around Vimes. No, sir. Good. Vimes walked over to the tunnel, pressed his back against a wall, took a deep breath and walked his legs up the opposite wall. Then he eased his way out over the plates of the waybridge, inched along with his feet and shoulder blades and, wincing at every protest from his knees, eventually dropped down. He walked across to D, who was talking to the guards. How did... Never mind, said Vimes. Let's just say I'm longer than a dwarf, shall we? Have you solved it? No, but I have an idea. Really? Already? said Dee. And what is that? I am still working it out, said Vimes. But it's lucky the king told you to ask me, Dee. One thing I have found out is that no dwarf will give you the right answer. The opera was near the end as Vimes slipped into the seat beside Sybil. Have I missed anything? he said. It's very good. Where have you been? You wouldn't believe me. He stared, unseeing, at the stage. A couple of dwarfs were engaged in a very careful mock battle. All right, then. If it was politics, it was... well, politics. There was nothing he could do about politics, so think about it as a crime. What was the simple solution? Best to start with the first rule of policing. Suspect the victim. 
Vimes wasn't quite sure who the victim was here, though, so suspect the witness. That was another good rule. That meant the late Dozy. He could have walked out with the scone days before he discovered the loss. He could have done just about anything. The way the thing was guarded was a joke. Nobby and Colon could have done it better. Much better, he corrected himself, because they had devious little minds and that was what made them coppers. The guards of the scone were honourable dwarfs, the last people you wanted to entrust with anything. You wanted sneaky people for a job like this. But it made no sense. He'd be the prime suspect. Vimes wasn't well up on dwarf law, but he figured there was not a huge friendly future in store for a prime suspect, especially if no other solution was forthcoming. Maybe he'd snapped after sixty years of changing candles. That didn't sound right. Anyone who could put up with a job like that for ten years would probably run in their groove for the rest of eternity. Anyway, Dozy had now gone to the great big gold mine in the sky or deep underground or wherever it was dwarfs believed in. He wasn't going to be answering any questions. He could solve this, Vimes told himself. Everything he needed was there, if only he asked the right questions and thought the right way. But his Vimish instincts were trying to tell him something else. This was a crime. If holding a piece of property to ransom was technically a crime, but it wasn't the crime. There was another crime here. He knew it in the same way that a fisherman spots the shoal by the ripple on the water. The fight on stage continued. It was slowed by the need to stop after every gingerly exchanged axe blow for a song probably about gold. Er, uh, what's all this about? he said. It's nearly over, whispered Sybil. They've only performed the bit concerning the baking of the scone, really, but at least they've included the ransom aria. Iron Hammer escapes from prison with the help of Scout, steals the truth that Aggie has hidden, conceals it by baking it into the scone, and persuades the guards around Bloodaxe's camp to let him pass. The dwarfs believed the truth was once a... a thing, a sort of ultimate rare metal, really, and the last bit of it is inside the scone, and the guards can't resist because of the sheer power of it. The song is about how love, like truth, will always reveal itself, just as the grain of truth inside the scone makes the whole thing true. It's actually one of the finest pieces of music. Gold is hardly mentioned at all. Vimes stared. He got lost in any song more complex than the sort with titles like Where Has All the Custard Gone? Jelly's Just Not the Same. Bloodaxe and Ironhammer, he muttered, aware that dwarfs around him were giving him annoyed looks. Which one was... Cheery told you they were both dwarfs, said Sybil sharply. Ah, said Vimes, glumly. He was always a little out of his depth in these matters. There were men, and there were women. He was clear on that. Sam Vimes was an uncomplicated man when it came to what poets call the lists of love. He'd noticed that sex bore some resemblance to cookery. It fascinated people. They sometimes bought books full of complicated recipes and interesting pictures, and sometimes when they were really hungry they created vast banquets in their imagination. But at the end of the day they'd settle quite happily for egg and chips, if it was well done, and maybe had a slice of tomato. In some parts of the shades he knew people adopted a more pick-and-mix approach. Vimes looked upon this as he looked upon a distant country. He'd never been there, and it wasn't his problem. It amazed him what people got up to when they had time on their hands. He just found it hard to imagine a world without a map. It wasn't that dwarfs ignored sex. It really didn't seem important to them. If humans thought the same way, his job would be a lot simpler. There seemed to be a deathbed scene now. It was a little hard for Vimes, with his shaky command of Ankh-Morpork Street dwarfish, to follow what was going on. Someone was dying, and someone else was very sorry about it. Both the main singers had beards you could hide a chicken in. They weren't bothering to act, apart from infrequently waving an arm in the direction of the other singer. But there were sobs all around him, and occasionally the trumpeting of a blown nose. Even Sybil's lower lip was trembling. It's just a song, he wanted to say. It's not real. Crime and streets and chases, they're real. A song won't get you out of a tight corner. Try waving a large bun at an armed guard in Ankh-Morpork and see how far it gets you. He shouldered his way through the throng after the performance, which, from the humans present, had received the usual warm reception that such things always got from people who hadn't really understood what was going on, but rather felt that they should have done. 
Dee was talking to a black-clad, heavily built young man who looked vaguely familiar to Vimes. Vimes must have looked familiar to him as well because he gave him a nod just short of offensiveness. Ah, your grace, Vimes, he said. Did you enjoy the opera? Especially the bit about the gold, said Vimes. And you are... The man clicked his heels. Wolf von Überwald. Something went bing in Vimes's head, and his eyes picked up details. The slight lengthening of the incisors, the way the blonde hair was so thick around the collar. Angua's brother, he said. Yes, your grace. Wolf the wolf, eh? Thank you, your grace, said Wolf solemnly. That is very funny. Indeed, yes. It is quite some time since I heard that one. Your ink, more pork sense of humour. But you're wearing silver on your uh, uniform. Those insignias, wolf heads, bite in the lightning. Wolf shrugged. Ah, the kind of thing a policeman would notice. But they are nickel. I don't recognise the regiment. We are more of a movement, said Wolf. The stance was Angus too. It was the poised fight-or-flight look, as if the whole body was a spring, eager to unwind, and flight wasn't an option. People in the presence of Angua, when she was in a bad mood, tended to turn up their collars without quite knowing why. But the eyes were different. They weren't like Angua's. They weren't even like the eyes of a wolf. No animal had eyes like that, but Vimes saw them occasionally in some of Ankh-Morpork's less salubrious drinking establishments, where, if you were lucky, you'd get out of the door before the drink turned you blind. Colon called that sort of person a bottle covey. Nobby preferred soddy nutter. But whatever the name, Vimes recognised a head-butting, eye-gouging, down-and-dirty bastard when he saw one. In a fight, you'd have no alternative but to lay him out or cut him down, because otherwise he'd do his very best to kill you. Most bar fighters wouldn't usually go that far, because killing a copper was known to be bad news for the murderer and anyone else who knew him. But your true nutter wouldn't worry about that, because while he was fighting, his brain was somewhere else. Wolf smiled. There is a problem, Your Grace. What? No, just thinking. I feel I've met you before. You called on my father's this morning. Ah, yes. We don't always change for visitors, Your Grace, said Wolf. There was an orange light in his eyes now. Until then, Vimes had thought that glowing eyes was just a figure of speech. If you'll excuse me, I do need to talk to the ideas taster for a moment, said Vimes. Politics. Dee followed him into a quiet spot. Yes. Did Dozy go to the Scon Cave at the same time every day? I believe so. It depended on his other duties. So he didn't go in at the same time every day. Right. When does the guard change? At three o'clock. Did he go in before the guards change or afterwards? That would depend on... Oh, dear. Don't the guards write anything down? Dee stared at Vimes. Are you saying he could have gone in twice in one day? Very good. But I'm saying someone might have. A dwarf comes up in a boat alone, carrying a couple of candles. Would the guards take that much interest? And if another dwarf carrying a couple of candles came up an hour or so later, when the new guards were there, well, is there any real risk? Even if our faker was noticed, he'd just have to mutter something about, oh, bad candles or something, damp wicks, anything. Dee looked distant. It's still a great risk, he said at last. If our thief was keeping an eye on the guard changes and knew where the real dozy was, it'd be worth it, wouldn't it? For the scone. Dee shuddered and then nodded. In the morning the guards will be closely questioned, he said. By me. Why? Because I know what kind of questions get answers. We'll set up an office here. We'll find out the movements of everyone and talk to all the guards, OK? Even the ones on the gates. We'll find out who went in and out. You already think you know something. Let's just say some ideas are forming, shall we? I will see to matters. Vimes straightened up and walked back to Lady Sybil, who stood like an island in a sea of dwarfs. She was talking animatedly to several of them who Vimes vaguely recognised as performers in the opera. "'What have you been up to, Sam?' she said. "'Politics, I'm afraid,' said Vimes. "'And trusting my instincts. "'Can you tell me who's watching us?' "'Oh, it's that game, is it?' said Sybil. She smiled happily, and in the tones of someone chatting about inconsequential things said, "'Practically everyone.' 
but if I was handing out prizes, I'd choose the rather sad lady in the little group just off to your left. She's got fangs, Sam, and pearls too. They don't exactly accessorise. Can you see Wolfgang? Eh, no, not now you can't mention it. That's odd. He was around a moment ago. Have you been upsetting people? I think I may let people upset themselves, said Vimes. Good for you. You do that so well. Vimes half turned, like someone just taking in the view. In amongst the human guests, the dwarfs moved and clustered. Five or six would come together and talk animatedly. Then one would drift away and join another group. He might be replaced, and sometimes an entire group would spread out like the debris of an explosion, each member heading towards another group. Vimes got the impression that there was a kind of structure behind all this, some slow, purposeful dance of information. Mineshaft meetings, he thought. Small groups because there wouldn't be room for more. And you don't talk too loudly. And then when a group decides, every member is an ambassador for that decision. The word spreads out in circles. It's like running a society on formal gossip. It occurred to him that it was also a way in which two plus two could be debated and weighed and considered and discussed until it became four and a bit, or possibly an egg. Vimes had once discussed the Ephebian idea of democracy with Carrot and had been rather interested in the idea that everyone, apart from the women, children, slaves, idiots and people who weren't really our kind of people, everyone had a vote until he found out that while he, Vimes, would have a vote, there was no way in the rules that anyone could prevent Nobby Nobs from having one as well. Vimes could see the flaw there straight away. Occasionally a dwarf would stop and stare before hurrying away. "'We're supposed to go in for supper, dear,' said Sybil, indicating the general drift towards a brightly lit cave. "'Oh, dear. Quaffing, do you think? Rats on sticks. Where's detritus? "'Over there, talking to the cultural attaché from Genua. That's the man with the glazed expression.' As they got closer, Vimes heard detritus's voice in full, expansive explanation. "'And then there's this big room with all seats in it, with red walls and them big gold babies climbing up to pillar. Only don't worry, cos they're not real gold babies. They're only made of plaster or something. There was a pause as Detritus considered matters. And also, I don't reckon it's real gold neither, cos some bugger would have pinched it if it was. And in front of the stage, there's this big pit where all the musicians sits. And that's about it for that room. In the next room, there's all these marble pillars, and on the floor they got red carpeting. Detritus, said Lady Sybil, I do hope you're not monopolising this gentleman. No, I've been telling him all about the culture we got in Ankh Morpork, said Detritus airily. I know just about every inch of the opera house. Uh, yes, said the cultural attaché in a stunned voice. And I must say I'm particularly interested in visiting the art gallery and seeing he shuddered. The picture of this woman, I don't reckon the artist knew how to do a smile properly, but the frame's got to be worth a bob or two. It sounds like the experience of a lifetime. Good evening to you. Do you know, I don't think he knows a lot of culture, said Detritus as the man strode away. Do you think people will miss us if we slip away, said Vimes, looking around. It's been a long day and I want to think about things. "'Sam, you are the ambassador, and Ankh Morpork is a world par,' said Sybil. "'We can't just sneak off. People will comment.' Vimes groaned. So Inigo was right. When Vimes sneezes, Ankh Morpork blows its nose. "'Your Excellency,' he looks down at two dwarfs. "'The Lord King will see you now,' said one of them. "'Er, uh, we will have to be officially presented,' Lady Sybil hissed. "'What, even detritus?' "'Yes.' but he's a troll. It had seemed amusing at the time. Vimes was aware of a drift in the crowds across the floor of the huge cave. There was a certain movement to them, a flow in the current of people towards one end of the cave. There was really no option but to join it. The low king was on a small throne under one of the chandeliers. There was a metal canopy over it, already encrusted with marvellous stalactites of wax. Around him, watching the crowd, were four dwarfs, tall for dwarfs, and looking rather menacing in their dark glasses. Each one was holding an axe. They spent all their time staring hard at people. The king was talking to the genuine ambassador. Vimes looked sideways at Cherry and Detritus. Suddenly, bringing them here wasn't such a good idea. In his official robes, the king looked a lot more distant and a lot harder to please. 
Hang on, he told himself. They are Ankh-Morpork citizens. They're not doing anything wrong. And then he argued, they're not doing anything wrong in Ankh-Morpork. The line moved along. Their party was almost in the presence. The armed dwarfs were all watching Detritus now and holding their axes in a slightly less relaxed way. Detritus appeared not to notice. This place is even more cultural than the Oprouse, he said, gazing around respectfully. Dem chandeliers must weigh a ton. He reached up and rubbed his head, and then inspected his fingers. Vimes glanced up. Something warm, like a buttered raindrop, hit his cheek. As he brushed it away, he saw the shadows move. Things happened with treacle slowness. He saw it as if he was watching himself from a little way away. He saw himself push Cheery and Sybil roughly, heard himself shout something, and watched himself dive towards the king, snatching the dwarf up as an axe clanged into his backplate. Then he was rolling with the angry dwarf in his arms, and the chandelier was halfway through its fall, candle flame streaming, and there was Detritus raising his hands with a calculating look on his face. There was a moment of stillness and silence as the troll caught the descending mountain of light, and then physics returned in an exploding cloud of dwarfs, debris, molten wax and tumbling flaring candles. Vimes woke up in darkness. He blinked and touched his eyes to make sure that they were open. Then he sat up and his head thumped against stone and then there was light, vicious yellow and purple lights filling his life very suddenly. He lay back until they went away. He took a personal itinerary. His cloak, helmet, sword and armour had all gone. He was left in his shirt and breeches, and while this place was not freezing, it had a clamminess that was already working its way through to his bones. Right. He wasn't sure how long it took him to get a feel for the cell, but a feel it was. He moved by inches, waving his arms ahead of him like a man practising a very slow martial art against the darkness. Even then the senses became unreliable in the total black. He followed the wall carefully, followed another wall, followed a wall which yielded under his fingertips the outline of a small door with a handle, and found the wall which had the stone slab against it on which he'd awoken. What made this all the harder was having to do it with his head sunk against his chest. Vimes wasn't a very tall man. If he had been, he'd probably have cracked his skull when he woke up. Without any other aids to rely on, he walked the length of the walls using his copper's pace. He knew exactly how long it took him, swinging his legs easily, to walk across the brass bridge back home. A little bit of muzzy mental arithmetic was needed, but eventually he decided the room was ten feet square. One thing that Vimes did not do was to shout, Help! Help! He was in the cell. Someone had put him in the cell. It was reasonable to assume, therefore, that whoever had done this was not interested in his opinions. He groped his way to the stone slab again and lay down. As he did so, something rattled. He patted his pockets and brought out what felt and sounded very much like a box of matches. There were only three left. So, resources. The clothes he stood up in and a few matches. Now to work out what the hell was going on. He remembered seeing the chandelier. He thought he remembered seeing Detritus actually catch the thing. And there had been a lot of screaming and shouting and running around, while in his arms the king had sworn at Vimes as only a dwarf could swear. Then someone had hit him. There was also an ache across his back where an axe had been turned aside by his armour. He felt a twitch of national pride at the thought. Ankh-Morpork armour had stood up to the blow. Admittedly, it was probably made in Ankh-Morpork by dwarfs from Uberwald, using steel smelted from Uberwald iron, but it damn well was Ankh-Morpork armour just the same. There was a pillow on the slab, made in Uberwald. As Vimes turned his head, the pillow went, very faintly, clink. This was a sound he didn't associate with feathers. In the darkness, he picked up the sack, and after resorting to his teeth, managed to rip a hole in the heavy material. If what he drew out had ever been part of a bird, it wasn't one Vimes would like to meet. It felt very much like Inigo's one-shot. A finger inserted very gingerly into the end told Vimes that it was loaded, too. Just one shot, he remembered, but it was one people didn't know you had. On the other hand, 
The tooth fairy probably wasn't responsible for putting it in the pillow, unless she'd been having to face some particularly difficult children lately. He slipped it back into the bag when he became aware of a light. It was the faintest glow showing that the door contained a barred window and that there were shadowy figures on the other side of it. "'Are you awake, your geese? This is very unfortunate.' D? "'Yes.' "'And you've come to tell me that this has all been some terrible mistake?' "'Alas, no. I am convinced of your innocence, of course.' "'Really? Me too,' growled Vimes. "'In fact, I'm so convinced of my innocence, I don't even know what it is I'm innocent of. Let me out, or—' "'Or you will stay in, I'm afraid,' said Dee. "'It is a very strong door. You are not in Ankh-Morpork, your grace. I will, of course, communicate your predicament to your Lord Veterinary as soon as possible.' "'but I understand that the message tower has been badly damaged. "'My predicament is that you've locked me up. "'Why? I saved your king, didn't I? "'There is conflict. "'Someone let that chandelier down. "'Yes, indeed, a member of your staff, it appears. "'You know that can't be true. "'Detritus and Littlebottom were with me when... "'Mr Skimmer was on your staff. "'He... yes, but I... he, he wouldn't... "'I believe you have such a thing in Ankh-Morpork as the Guild of Assassins,' said Dee calmly. "'Correct me if I'm wrong. "'He was up at the tower. "'The damaged tower? "'It was damaged before he—' "'Vime stopped. "'Why would he smash up one of the towers?' "'I did not say he would,' said Dee. "'The flat calm was still there. "'And then, Your Grace—' It has been suggested that you gave a signal just before the thing came down. What? A hand to the cheek or something. It has been suggested that you anticipated the event. The thing was swaying. Look, let me talk to Skimmer. Do you have supernatural powers, Your Grace? Vimes hesitated. He's dead. We believe he became entangled in the winch mechanism in the process of releasing the chandelier. Three dwarfs were dead around him. "'He wouldn't—' Vimes stopped again. "'Of course he wouldn't. "'It's just that he's a member of this guild we have, "'and you certainly know that, don't you?' Dee must have seen his expression. "'Quite so, quite so. "'Everything will be investigated thoroughly. "'The innocent have nothing to fear.' "'The news that they have nothing to fear "'is guaranteed to strike terror into the hearts of innocents everywhere. "'What have you done with Sybil?' "'Done, Your Grace, why nothing? We are not barbarians. We have heard nothing but good reports of your wife. She is upset, of course.' Vimes groaned. "'And a tritus and little bottom? "'Well, of course, they were under your command, Your Grace, and one is a troll and the other is dangerously different, and that is why, and precisely for that reason, they are under house arrest in your own embassy.' We do respect the traditions of diplomacy, and we will not have it said that we have acted out of malice. Dee sighed. And then, of course, there is the other matter. Are you going to accuse me of stealing the scone too? You laid hands on the king. Vimes stared. Huh? A ton of candlestick was about to fall on him. This has been pointed out, and I'm imprisoned for saving him from an assassination attempt I planned. "'Are you?' "'No! "'Look, the thing was coming down. "'What else should I have done? "'Tugged at the carpet and tried to drag him away?' "'Yes, yes, I understand, "'but precedent in this area is very clear. "'In 1345, when the king at the time fell into a lake, "'not one member of his staff dared touch him because of the ruling, "'and the subsequent finding was that they had acted correctly. "'It is forbidden to touch the king.' I have, of course, explained to the conclave that this is not the Ankh-Morpork way, but this is not Ankh-Morpork. I don't need everyone reminding me about that. You will remain our guest while investigations continue. Food and drink will be brought to you. And light? Of course. Excuse our lack of consideration. Stand back from the door, please. The guards with me are armed and they are... "'Uncomplicated people.' "'The grill on the door was swung back. "'A glowing cage was put on the ledge. "'What's this? A sick glowworm? "'It is a kind of beetle, yes. "'You'll find that it will very soon seem quite bright. "'We are very accustomed to darkness.' "'Look!' 
said Vimes as the grill was shut again. You know this is ridiculous. I don't know what the position is with Mr Skimmer, but I damn well intend to find out. And there's the scone theft. I'm pretty certain I'm close to working that out too. If you let me return to the embassy, where else could I go? We would not wish to find out. You may just feel that life would be more pleasant in Ankh-more Pork. Really, and how would we get there? You may have friends in unexpected places. Vimes thought of the evil little weapon in the pillow. You will not be badly treated. This is our way, said Dee. I will return when I have news. Aye! But Dee was a retreating shape in the crepuscular, almost not there light. In Vimes's cell the glow beetle was doing its best. All it managed to achieve, though, was to turn the darkness into a variety of green shadows. You could find your way around without walking into the walls, but that was about the extent of it. One shot, which they didn't know you had. That'd probably get him out of the door, into a corridor, underground, full of dwarfs. On the other hand, it was amazing how the evidence could stack up against you and people wanted it to. Anyway, Vimes was an ambassador. What had happened to diplomatic immunity? But that was hard to argue when you were faced with uncomplicated people with weaponry. There was a risk that they'd experiment to see if it was true. One shot they didn't expect. Sometime later, there was a rattling of keys and the door was pulled open. Vimes could make out the shape of two dwarfs. One was holding an axe, the other was bearing a tray. The dwarf with the axe motioned Vimes to step back. An axe wasn't a good idea, Vimes considered. It was always the weapon of choice amongst dwarfs, but it wasn't sensible in a confined space. He raised his hands, and as the other dwarf walked cautiously over to the stone slab, let them move towards the back of his neck. These dwarfs were nervous of him. Perhaps they didn't see humans very often. They'd remember this one. "'Want to see a trick?' said Vimes. "'Grzdak!' "'Watch this!' said Vimes, and brought his hands around and shut his eyes just before the match flared. He heard the axe drop as its owner tried to cover his face. That was an unexpected bonus, but there wasn't time to thank the god of desperate men. Vimes plunged forward, kicked as hard as he could, and heard an oof of expelled breath. Then he leapt into the patch of darkness that contained the other dwarf, found a head, spun round, and rammed it into an unseen wall. The first dwarf was trying to get to his feet. Vimes fumbled for him in the gloom, pulled him up by his jerkin and rasped, "'Somebody left me a weapon. They wanted me to kill you. Remember that. I could have killed you.' He punched the dwarf in the stomach. This was no time to play by the Marquis of Fantaylor rules. The Marquis of Fantaylor got into many fights in his youth, most of them as a result of being known as the Marquis of Fantaylor, and wrote a set of rules for what he termed the noble art of fisticuffs, which mostly consisted of a list of places where people weren't allowed to hit him. Many people were impressed with his work, and later stood with noble chest outthrust and fists balled in a spirit of manly aggression against people who hadn't read the Marquis's book, but did know how to knock people senseless with a chair. The last words of a surprisingly large number of people were... Stuff the bloody Marquis of Fantaylor. Then he turned, snatched the little cage containing the light beetle and headed for the door. There was a feeling of passageway stretching off in both directions. Vimes paused for just long enough to sense the draught on his face and headed that way. Another glow beetle was hanging in a cage a little distance off. It illuminated, if such a bright word could be used for a light that merely made the darkness less black, a huge circular opening in which a fan turned lazily. The blades were so slow that Vimes was able to step between them into the velvet cavern beyond. Someone really wants me dead, he thought, as he inched his way along the nearest invisible wall with his face to the draught. One shot they weren't expecting, but someone was expecting it, weren't they? If you want to get a prisoner out of the clink, then you give him a key or a file. You don't give him a weapon. A key might get him out. A weapon would get him killed. He stopped, one foot over emptiness. The glow beetle revealed a hole in the floor. It had the huge suckingness of depth. 
Then he gripped the beetle's cage between his teeth, took a few steps back, and completely misjudged the distance. He hit the other side of the hole with every rib, both arms flat on the floor beyond. A bit of ank morpork sense of humour hissed between his teeth. He scrabbled his way onto the cave floor and got his breath back. Then he took the one shot out of his pocket, fired it into the floor, tossed it into the hole, it clattered and echoed for some time, and moved on, keeping his face towards the cold air. This wasn't a tunnel anymore. It was the bottom of a shaft, but the green glow lit up something heaped in the middle. Bimes picked up a handful of snow, and when he looked up, a flake melted on his face. He grinned in the dark. The beetle light just caught the edge of the spiral stairs fixed to the rock. Stairs turned out to be a generous description. When the shaft had been cut, the dwarfs had made holes in the stone and hammered thick bulks of timber into them. He tried one or two. They seemed sturdy enough. With care, he'd be able to scramble. He was a long way up before one log snapped. He flung out his hands and caught the next one, his grip slipping on the wet wood. The glow beetle disappeared downwards and Vimes, swinging back and forth from his precarious handhold, watched the circle of dim green lights dwindle to a dot and vanish. Then the realisation crept over him that there was no way he would be able to pull himself up. His fingers were numb, but the rest of his entire life consisted of the amount of time they could maintain a grip on the clammy step above him. Call it a minute, perhaps. There are a lot of things that could profitably be done in a minute but most of them couldn't be done with no hands while hanging in darkness over a long drop. He lost his grip. A moment later he smacked into the spiral of logs one turn below, which parted company with the wall. Man and timber fell one more turn. Vimes landed with a rib-bending thump across one step, while those around it gave way. Rocking gently on the one tough log, he listened to the thuds and booms as the fallen timber continued to the bottom of the shaft. Vimes had intended to swear, but the fall had knocked the breath out of him. He hung like a folded pair of old trousers. It had been a long time since he'd slept. Whatever he'd been doing on the slab, it hadn't been sleep. Normal sleep didn't leave your mouth feeling as though glue had been poured into it. And only this morning the new ambassador for Ankh-Morpork had strolled out to present his credentials. Only this evening Ankh-Morpork's commander of police had set out to solve a simple little theft— and now he was dangling halfway up a freezing shaft with a few inches of old and unreliable wood between him and a brief trip to the next world. All he could hope for was that his whole life wasn't going to pass before his eyes. There were some bits of it he didn't want to remember. Ah, Sir Samuel, bad luck, you are doing so well. He opened his eyes. A faint purple light just above him illuminated the form of the Lady Margalotta. She was sitting... On empty space. Can I give you a lift? she said. Vimes shook his head muzzily. If it makes you feel any better, I really don't like doing this, said the vampire. It's so expected of one. Oh dear, that rotten old log doesn't look very... The log snapped. Vimes landed spread-eagled on the turn below, but only for a moment. Several stairs broke and dropped him a further flight. This time he caught hold of one and was once again dangling. Lady Margolotta descended regally. Far below the broken wood boomed. Now, in theory, this might be an almost survivable way of getting back down, said the vampire. Unfortunately, I fear that the descending logs have smashed many of the ones below. Vimes shifted. His handhold seemed secure it might just be possible to pull himself up. "'I knew you were behind this,' he muttered, trying to will some life into his shoulder muscles. "'No, you didn't. You knew that the scone wasn't stolen, though.' Vimes stared at the serenely floating shape. "'The dwarfs wouldn't think that,' he began. The log under him gave the little nasty movement that announces to any luckless passengers that it is about to land. Lady Margolotta drifted closer, I know you hate vampires, she said. It's quite usual for your personality type. It's the penetrative aspect. But if I was you right now, I'd ask myself, do I hate them with all my life? She held out a hand. Just one bite'll end all my troubles, eh? Fimes snarled. 
One bite would be one too many, Sam Vines. The wood cracked. She grabbed his wrist. If he'd thought about it at all, Vimes would have expected to be dangling from a vampire now. Instead, he was simply floating. Don't think of letting go, said Margolotta as they rose gently up the shaft. One bite would be one too many, said Vimes. He recognised the mangled mantra. You're a teetotaler? Almost four years now. No blood at all? Oh yes, animal. It's rather kinder to them than slaughter, don't you think? Of course, it makes them docile, but frankly, a cow is unlikely ever to win the Thinker of the Year award. I'm on a wagon, Mr. Vimes. The wagon, we call it the wagon, said Vimes weakly. And that replaces human blood? Like lemonade replaces whiskey. Believe me. However, the intelligent mind can find a substitute. The sides of the shaft dropped away, and they were in clear, freezing air, which knifed through Vimes's shirt. They drifted sideways a little, and then Vimes was dropped into knee-deep snow. One of the better things about our dwarfs is that they don't often try something new, and they never let go of anything old, said the vampire, hovering over the snow. You weren't hard to find. Where am I? Vimes looked around at rocks and trees, mounded in snow. In the mountains, quite a long way, Vidishins of the town, Mr. Vimes. Goodbye. You're going to leave me here? I'm sorry. You were the one who escaped. I am certainly not here. Me, a vampire, interfering in the affairs of dwarfs? Unthinkable. But let us just say, I like people to have an even chance. It's freezing. I haven't even got a coat. What is it you want? You have freedom, Mr. Vimes. Isn't that what everyone wants? Isn't it supposed to give you a lovely warm glow? Lady Margolotta disappeared into the snow. Vimes shivered. He hadn't realised how warm it had been underground, or what time it was. There was a dim, a very dim light. Was this just after sunset? Was it almost dawn? The flakes were piling up on his damp clothes, driven by the wind. Freedom could get you killed. Shelter, that was essential. The time of day and a precise location were no use to the dead. They always knew what time it was and where they were. He moved away from the open shaft and staggered into the trees where the snow was less deep. It gave off a light, fainter than a sick beetle, as if snow somehow absorbed it from the air as it fell. Vimes wasn't good at forests. They were things you saw on the horizon. If he'd thought about them at all, he'd imagined a lot of trees standing like poles, brown at the bottom, bushy and green at the top. Here there were humps and bumps and dark branches weighted and creaking under the snow. It fell around him with a hiss. Occasionally lumps of the stuff would slide from somewhere above, and there would be another shower of frigid crystals as a branch sprang back. There was a track of sorts, or at least a wider, smoother expanse of snow. Vimes followed it on the basis that there was no more sensible choice. The warm glow of freedom lasted only so long. Vimes had city eyes. He'd watched coppers develop them. A trainee copper who glanced once at a street was just learning, and if he didn't learn quicker, he'd become highly experienced at dying. One who'd been on the streets for a while paid attention, took in details, noted shadows, saw background and foreground, and the people who were trying not to be in either. Angua looked at streets like that. She worked at it. The long-term coppers, like even Nobby when he was on a good day, glanced once at a street and that was enough, because they'd seen everything. Maybe there were country eyes, forest eyes. Vimes saw trees, mounds, snow and not much else. The wind was getting up. It began to howl among the trees. Now the snow stung. Trees, branches, snow. Vimes kicked a mound beside the track. Snow slid off dark pine needles. He dropped to his hands and knees and pushed forwards. Ah! It was still cold, and there was some snow on the dead needles, but the weighted branches had spread around the trunk like a tent. He pulled himself in, congratulating himself. It was windless here, and, contrary to all common sense, the blanket of snow above him seemed to make it warmer. It even smelled warm, sort of animal. Three wolves, 
lying lazily around the trunk of the tree, were watching him with interest. Vimes added metaphorical freezing to the other sort. The animals didn't seem frightened. Wolves. And that was about it. It made as much sense to say snow or wind. Right now those were more certain killers. He'd heard somewhere that wolves wouldn't attack you if you faced them down. The trouble was that he was going to sleep soon. He could feel it creeping over him. He wasn't thinking right and every muscle ached. Outside the wind moaned, and his grace, the Duke of Ank, fell asleep. He awoke with a snort and, to his surprise, all his arms and legs as well. A drop of chilled water, melted from the roof just above by the heat of his body, ran down his neck. His muscles didn't hurt any more. He couldn't feel most of them. And the wolves had gone. There was trampled snow at the far end of the makeshift lair, and light so bright that he groaned. It turned out to be daylight, from a bright sky bluer than any Vimes had seen, so blue that it seemed to shade into purple at the zenith. He stepped out into a sugar-frosted world, crunchy and glittering. Wolf tracks led away between the trees. It occurred to Vimes that following them would not be a life-enhancing move. Perhaps last night had been understood as time out, but today was a new day, and probably the search was on for breakfast. The sun felt warm, the air was cold, his breath hung in front of him. There should be people around, shouldn't there? Vimes was hazy on rural issues, but weren't there supposed to be charcoal burners, woodcutters, and, he tried to think, little girls taking goodies to Granny? The stories Vimes had learned as a kid suggested that all forests were full of bustle, activity, and the occasional scream, but this place was silent. He set off in a direction that appeared to head downwards on general principles. Food was the important thing. He'd still got a couple of matches, and he could probably make a fire if he had to be out here another night, but it was a long time since the canopy at the reception. This is Ankh-Morpork trudging over and through the snow. After half an hour he reached the bottom of a shallow valley, where a stream splashed between encroaching banks of ice. It steamed. The water was warm to the touch. He followed the banks for some way. They were crisscrossed with animal tracks. Here and there the water pooled in deep hollows that smelled of rotten eggs. Around them the leafless bushes were heavy with ice where the steam had frozen. Food could wait. Vimes stripped off his clothes and stepped into one of the deeper pools, yelping at the heat, and then lay back. Didn't they do something like this up at No Thingfjord? He'd heard stories. They had hot, steamy baths and then ran around in the snow, hitting one another with birch logs, didn't they? Or something. There was nothing really daft that some foreigner wouldn't do somewhere. God, it felt good. Hot water was civilization. Vimes could feel the stiffness in his muscles melting away in the warmth. After a moment or two, he splashed over to the bank and rummaged through his clothes until he found a flattened cigar packet containing a couple of things that, after the events of the past 24 hours, looked like fossilised twigs. He had two matches. Well, the hell with it. Anyone could light a fire with one match. He lay back in the water. That was a good decision. He could feel himself coming back together again, pulled into shape by the heat within and without. Ah, your grace! Wolf von Überwald was sitting on the opposite bank. He was stark naked. A little vapour rose off him, as if he'd just been exerting himself. Muscles gleamed as though they'd been oiled. They probably had been. A run in the snow is such a thing, is it not? said Wolf pleasantly. You are certainly learning the ways of Überwald, your grace. Lady Sibyl is alive and well and free to go back to your city when the passes are cleared. I know you would wish to hear that. Other figures were approaching through the trees, men and women, all of them as unselfconsciously naked as Wolf. Vimes realised he was a dead man bathing. He could see it in Wolf's eyes. Nothing like a hot dip before breakfast, he said. Ah, yes, we also have not as yet breakfasted, said Wolf. He stood up stretched and cleared the pool from a standing start. Vimes's breeches were picked up and examined. I threw Inigo's damn thing away, said Vimes. I don't think a friend put it there. It is all a great game, your grace, said Wolf. Do not reproach yourself. The strongest survive, which is as it should be. D planned this, did he? Wolf laughed. 
The dear little D, oh, he had a plan. It was a good little plan, although a touch insane. Happily, it will no longer be required. You want the dwarfs to go to war? Strength is good, said Wolf, folding Vimes's clothes neatly. But like some other good things, it only remains good if it is not possessed by too many people. He tossed the clothes as far as he could. "'What is it you want me to say, Your Grace?' Wolf continued. "'Something like, you are going to die anyway, so I might as well tell you, perhaps?' "'Well, it'd be a help,' said Vimes. "'You are going to die anyway,' Wolf smiled. "'Why don't you tell me?' Talking gained time. Maybe those woodcutters and charcoal burners would be along at any minute. If they hadn't brought their axes, everyone was going to be in big trouble.' "'I'm pretty sure why the replica scone was stolen in Ankh-Morpork,' said Vimes. "'I've just got the inkling of an idea that a copy was made of it, "'which was smuggled here on one of our coaches. "'Diplomats don't get searched. "'Well done. "'Shame Igor came to unload when one of your boys was there, wasn't it? "'Oh, it's hard to hurt an Igor. "'You don't care, do you?' said Vimes. "'A bunch of dwarfs want Albrecht on the throat the scone because they want to hang on to that old-time certainty, and you just want dwarfs fighting. An old Albrecht wouldn't even get the right scone back. Let us just say that just now we find our interests converge, shall we? said Wolf. 